House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Oh, welcome back into the House of Mystery. And on the line, like we were saying before the break, we've got author Abigail Pesta, who's written the book called The Girls. Um, thank you for being here, Abigail. Thank you for having me, and thank you for spreading the word about the brave women in this book. You know, they told their stories to help people recognize the signs of a predator, so these stories need to be heard. Yeah, and, you know, I was going to say, along that subject line, um, there's also a, a mentality in the U.S. right now, and I don't know if, if, if this was an issue in this case, it's, it's it seems like there's a lot of accusations about a lot of assaults and there's a lot of negative feedback toward it, like uh, they just want money, they're jumping on the bandwagon and, and all of that stuff. Um, even the Supreme Court ju justice that was going for it, right? There's just so much um, stuff out there. Uh, was that an issue for a lot of the girls? Um, well, for the women in this case, it's always... You know, it takes a lot of courage to come forward and um, publicly identify yourself as a survivor of sexual abuse. So for, for every single one of the women in this case who has done so, um, it takes a lot of courage. You're, yes, you are, you know, subjecting yourself to um, blame and shame and um, accusations. And that's always been a problem for... Uh, women who come forward with reports of abuse. Um, in this case, in the Larry Nasser case, there is no question that he abused hundreds of young women and girls. Um, he pleaded guilty. He, over time, had taken uh, videos of this uh, abuse, which he disguised as a treatment, and he talked about what he did. You know, he um, there's just no question that he's guilty. And um, but even still, that doesn't prevent people from, you know, blaming the women. Um, I got very interested in this case in the beginning because, as a journalist, I, I write about women fighting back against crime and injustice. And I interviewed um, one of the first women to publicly identify herself as a survivor of Nasser's abuse. And she was a, a college student, and I sat down with her and her mom, and this was in the early months of the scandal. And they told me how um, the young woman, her name is Lindsay Lemke, um, was a kid when Nasser was abusing her, and she didn't realize it was abuse. He was the Olympic doctor at that point, and she was honored that he was making time for her. And he had befriended her and the family and the entire community. But So they had found out that, in fact... You know, he had been abusing Lindsay for years, hundreds of times, and she and her mom were trying to come to grips with this. It was just a terrible realization. This was their trusted doctor and friend. And they said people were blaming them. You know, that on Facebook, people would say, why didn't the parents know or why didn't the kids tell? And I just thought, what a nightmare. Here's this family grappling with this terrible realization, and they're getting blamed for it. You know, so I, that's when I started to think, let's help people understand how this happened and then hopefully we can help prevent it from happening again yeah because i was going to say um his defense attorney nasser's defense attorney 
uh, you know, uh, what was it, Shannon Smith, uh, and and look at mm-hmm. look at her comments about how uh, she didn't believe the girls because they were all living a perfectly what she said normal life, and never questioned uh, the assault and and always thought of it as a treatment until all this you know happened. So with that kind of attitude, you're you're kind of fighting an uphill battle. Well, for one thing, um, Nasser preyed on kids, and a lot of these kids, not all of them, but many of them were gymnasts. Now, a number of them were just kids in the local Lansing, Michigan community, um, cheerleaders, volleyball players, dancers, runners. He got his hands on all kinds of kids because he was a... um, a professor and a doctor at Michigan State University, so he worked in the sports medicine clinic at the university. But he also volunteered at a local gym for gymnasts, and he he also rose to become Olympic doctor. But for one thing, he was preying on kids, and a lot of them were very vulnerable kids because they had grown up in gymnastics boot camp. They, especially in in this Michigan community, there was a gym run by a coach named John Gettert, where these girls were just they described just a horror show um, of being, uh, they called it brain, they, called, they said they were brainwashed. They said they got in there as little kids, and this hard-driving coach told them, um, he blamed them for their injuries. He said injuries were their fault because they weren't concentrating. So kids were really, you know, they were hiding their injuries. Um, they were. They said they were berated and shoved physically, mocked, um, that he, the coach made sexual comments, that he walked in on them in the bathroom, in the locker room. So, you know, a lot of these kids in this world had already lost their sense of boundaries and their sense of self, and then they got sent into Nasser's lair. You know, so they were very vulnerable kids, so a lot of them did not realize they were being abused. But some of them did realize it, and... For nearly three decades, they reported him. They reported him to coaches and to counselors and to the police. Um, No one listened. No one believed the girls. They just all believed the doctor. Well, I'm curious. I have to ask this. You said that, Al, you said that the lawyer, Shannon Smith, had doubted that these girls were telling the truth. Isn't there something like over 250 girls who have accused him over the years? That seems unlikely that they'd all be lying about that. Yeah, I didn't. I did not hear the. I don't. I didn't quote the defense attorney as saying. No, no Al. Curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I did speak to that defense attorney, in fact. Um, and um, so I, you know, so I don't know. I'm not sure where that quote is coming from. But um, yeah, in the end, more than more than some 500 women have come forward because he got away with this for almost 30 years. So. He was getting his hands on kids across his community in Lansing, Michigan. You know, he was getting his hands on kids at the local high school in addition to the gym, in addition to the Michigan State Clinic, in addition to the U.S. National Gymnastics Team and um, the Olympic team. You know, he was everywhere. He was also, uh, you know, working with gymnasts at the Caroli Ranch in Texas, the Olympic Training Center. So... Over 30, over nearly 30 years, um, yeah, he had a lot of opportunities um, to abuse kids. Mm. Yeah, that, that quote was, uh, she was doing an interview, uh, Shannon Smith, that is, 
on News Radio mm-hmm. 950 WWJ. Ah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I did. I did speak with her. I did. Yeah, I did speak with her for, for the book. She hadn't told me yeah. um, that she doubted the women, um, but she did tell me something interesting about Nasser, which was um, she said in the beginning he seemed to have some kind of disconnect. Like he would, you know, he would tell her, uh, "I'm not penetrating these girls," because he, you know, what he did is he. He was an osteopath, and he convinced kids that um, if he would touch them in one part of their body, it would help another part. And so that's how he, you know, made kids think it was okay that he was he was penetrating them with his bare hands. Right. And um, you know, she told me that in the beginning of the case, he was telling her, um, "I don't penetrate." She she actually had videos where he was doing that and talking mm-hmm. about that because that was what he called his treatment. So, you know, I think he was such a master manipulator because he had decades to hone his skills. He was constantly manipulating. And no wonder he got away with it so many times. You know, back in 2004, um, a teenage girl, Brianne Randall, went to the police with her mother in Meridian Township in Michigan and um, reported him for sexual abuse. And the police interviewed her and then interviewed him. And that was it. They believed him. The end. <laughs> Case closed. They didn't interview any other experts to see if this so-called treatment was legitimate. Um, but that was just one of many times that girls reported him. Back in 1997, a teenage girl reported him to the coach at Michigan State University. And um, she said, that was Larissa Boyce, she said the coach didn't tell her parents, didn't tell any authorities, but told Nasser. And then Larissa got in trouble for doubting the doctor and she was a kid and she thought oh gosh I must have a dirty mind and so she wound up back on the doctor's table and he continued to abuse her for years you know over time there were just a number of these cases where young women and girls did realize they were being abused and they did report it and just you know got dismissed and disbelieved Uh, why do you think they did that why do you think when when the police uh, were told by you know brought in with a mother and a child and they're saying you know this this man did this and then other people it, why did they keep on just kind of ignoring it or just you know brushing it under the under the rug so to speak well one thing that was interesting in that case of the uh, the police in 2004 that profound failure uh, that police department ended up apologizing to that young woman and her family after Nasser was sentenced um, and they did a public apology and a private apology to her. Um, but I think in answer to your question, you know, that's the big question here. Why don't people listen to young women and girls? Why didn't they for decades? And, um, you know, there were a number of um, trainers and coaches at Michigan State who were also told, you know, what Nasser was doing. And the Michigan Attorney General did a, an investigation of Michigan State after Nasser was sentenced to see what went wrong there. And that report found that more than a dozen young women had talked to coaches or counselors or trainers about Nasser, and no one had done anything. And the Attorney General's report concluded that it wasn't that people were necessarily trying to cover for him, but that they just weren't listening, they weren't paying attention, they weren't believing. They, he had risen to become such a big deal doctor. He had risen to become the Olympic doctor that everyone thought it was a 
tremendous honor, you know, that he was working there at the university. And they just thought, oh, well, maybe the girls misunderstood or, you know, he would never harm anyone. Um, So I think that was part of it. But then there was also, there was also blatant covering up as well. Michigan State, um, in 2014, a young woman named Amanda Tomashaw reported him um, to the police and to Michigan State University after he abused her at the Michigan State Sports Medicine Clinic. And um, the university uh, issued two reports, one for her that said he had not violated the school's sexual harassment policy, and a second report for the staff members that said, yikes, major red flags here, uh, legal, you know, potential legal liabilities. Uh, you know, in other words, one report for her saying no wrongdoing, an internal report saying, okay, this is, you know, problematic and we could be under fire legally and let's take a look. So, you know, that was basically covering it up and they got busted for that. Then a couple of years later, both reports came out. Um, but also the police failed to um, file any charges against Nasser hmm. as well. He, you know, he, manip- he manipulated just everyone around him. So what what broke the case? Like what what was the one thing or the uh, one person that uh, um, people listened to? So finally, in 2016, um, the Indianapolis Star newspaper ran a report about USA Gymnastics. That's the governing body for the sport, and it's based in Indianapolis. And they did a report about... Um, how the organization was covered was um, mishandling reports of abuse at the hands of coaches. And um, after that report came out, a, a former gymnast named Rachel Den Hollander contacted the paper and said a doctor had abused her, Larry Nasser, and then two other gymnasts, uh, Jessica Howard and Jamie Dancher, also called the paper and said named Larry Nasser as an abuser. So. Um, you know, so three people contacted the star. The star did an investigation, ran a report on Nasser, and um, the police this time, investi- you know, investigated and acted after having failed the prior two times in 2004 and in 2014, and more women started coming forward. So I think part of it was good journalism. Part of it was um, the bravery of these women who were coming forward. And part of it was that it was 2016 and people were starting to finally listen. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but people were starting to understand and listen when women were reporting sexual assault. So I think all of those factors, um, you know, finally brought him down as more and more women came forward and spoke to the police. Um, and also in the police began investigating him and they found tens of thousands of images of child pornography on his hard drive in, in the trash. Um, you know, that was the, the, the fine, that was the takedown finally. But, um, but there were still, there were huge failures in the lead up to that too because a year b- before the Indianapolis Star report, um, a coach had overheard two gymnasts talking about Nasser um, at the Caroli Ranch in Texas. And, had told USA Gymnastics about what she had heard. And, you know, the girls were, they were just talking about, you know, what he did and how it felt uncomfortable and weird. And the coach heard this and thought, whoa, that's not right. So she reported the doctor then, and um, USA Gymnastics suspended him, but 
lied about the reason why, told the told gymnasts and their families that you know they didn't the organization didn't say he was under investigation, but said that he you know had personal reasons why for why he wouldn't be at uh, available at events. Um, and then you know they didn't tell the FBI for several weeks. The FBI didn't do anything for a year. The U.S. Olympic Committee did nothing. No one did anything until the Indianapolis Star report came out. So. In you know, for more than a year after USA Gymnastics had been alerted, um, Nasser continued abusing girls um, at Michigan State, at the gym in Michigan, at the high school in Michigan. You know, it's just it's it's just outrageous. How how did he get away with it in 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 so many ways? Like, uh, you know, he's doing all of this abuse mm-hmm. throughout all of these places. Um, and even I, I noticed listening in your book, a lot of times he would do it right in front of the parents. Yes, and that's what the women in this book really help people understand how he got away with it for almost 30 years. Because these were, you know, the women in this book grew up with him from a lot of them from the time they were toddlers. A lot of them are telling their stories for the first time, and they unveil how over the years he transformed himself from a doctor to a predator, starting back in 1988. The very first survivor, um, Sarah Turisti, who tells her story for the first time in this book, she was there the day Nasser walked into this gym in Michigan to volunteer. He was a medical student at the time. And um, he started testing limits with her early on. She had she was trying to come back from a broken sternum and broken ribs. And... Um, you know, she describes how he began um, pushing her, le- icing her chest and pushing her leotard down and touching her nipples. And that's, you know, that's really how it all began. He was seeing what he could get away with with her. But he wasn't that nice to her at the time. And it's interesting because over time he figured a lot of things out. He figured out how to befriend the kids, how to bring them gifts and compliment them and how to befriend their parents and, you know, how to gain everyone's trust and, and he ingratiated himself to the coach at this gym, John Getter. And he, he plays a central role in this story, too, because Sarah says that the coach actually walked in and saw Nasser abusing her and that she, she said she was lying topless on a table. Nasser was icing her chest and touching her nipples, and she said um, Getter was there and that he didn't report the abuse but instead made fun of her. She said he... Uh, mocked her breasts. She had a lump on her chest from the rib injury, and she said he called it her third boob. And she said he then began referring her, um, referring to her by the nickname third boob. Um, And she says if he had done something back in the late 80s, you know, decades of abuse could have been stopped. Um, So So, so Gettert really really played a role in this. I I was going to say Gettert and and, uh, Nassar, the relationship the two of them had contributed to this as well. Well, that's what so many of the women told me, is that those two men who began working together back in the late 80s, and they rose to Olympic doctor and Olympic coach. Gettert became an Olympic coach. They worked together for nearly 30 years at this gym while Nasser was abusing girls in the back room. And um, so many of the gymnasts I talked to said that the training environment was so abusive that it really made the girls vulnerable to the sexual abuse. You know, one young woman told me she trained and competed 
on a broken leg and a broken elbow because she was afraid of getting in trouble for being injured. And she didn't know her bones were broken, but she knew she was in excruciating pain. And she told Nasser, and Nasser just taped her up and said she was fine. And finally, one day to practice, she simply couldn't do her floor routine on a broken leg. And she said Gettert uh, punished her for that, that he made her do the routine substituting somersaults for the flips in the air. And he gathered all the girls around to humiliate her. And her, her younger sister was there and had to watch this. And, you know, she said it was mortifying. Her older sister's crying, trying to do the floor routine, doing somersaults. Here, it turns out, she had broken limbs. You know, it's, I mean, it's just insane. I heard so many horror stories out of that gym like that. Another young woman told me she had flown off the uneven bars and gotten injured, and she got punished for getting injured. She had to sit in the over-splits, which are splits where you elevate one leg, so you go down deeper than the usual splits. That was her punishment for getting injured. And then she said Nasser came along. You know, she said her face was bloody. She was crying. She's sitting in the over-splits in trouble for being injured and she said Nasser came along and um, said oh let me help you and then he talked about what a jerk getter it was and so Nasser you know he gained he learned to gain the gymnast trust and then later he cashed in on that and he abused her um, but yeah what I was starting to say earlier too is over time the women show how Nasser evolved he not only figured out how to befriend the girls and their families how to um, ingratiate himself to the coach and, and to authorities and to everyone around him um, but he, you know, he really, he just became a master. He, over time, began bringing kids gifts. From when, when he became Olympic doctor, he'd bring them gifts from the Olympics that reminded them that he was this powerful doctor and they felt honored to see him. Um, yes, as you mentioned, another tactic was he would abuse kids with a parent in the room. He would block their view so they couldn't see what was happening. He had figured out that the child was unlikely to say anything because probably you know, the girl wouldn't realize she was being abused. And if, you know, if her mom or dad was in the room, then she would think, well, it must be okay because my parents are here, you know. And that's just dreadful. I spoke to some of those parents who were in the room when their child was being abused, and they're just devastated. But that was another tactic he learned to use. Um, once social media came around, he started using that. He would like the girl's Instagram posts. He would compliment on their or Facebook or, you know, he would text them. He would compliment on them on their outfits, on their wins, on their looks. Um, you know, another tactic he had was he would not bill the family's health insurer. He he would say, "I see such potential in your child that you know I'm going to treat her without billing you." And these are families. You know, the girls were maybe hoping for a college scholarship. These were not wealthy families they weren't the girls weren't necessarily aiming for the olympics they were girls in lansing michigan and the families would think wow that's, he's so generous that's so amazing he's not going to bill our health insurer and then they look back today and they realize oh my god he didn't bill the insurer so there were no records no one could ask you know no medical officials could say wait what's this, what's this person doing well why is he you know seeing my daughter so frequently so all of these tactics you know over time they, it, this is what these women really do such an incredible job of showing you know how he got away with it and um yeah he just he just constantly um evolved mm. and i guess uh now uh, getter the coach would be really mean to the girls so they almost it almost uh sent them to nassar for um comfort in a way too 
Yeah, a lot of the women describe it as like a good cop, bad cop situation. You know, get her, would yell at them and berate them and um, just trample their self-esteem. And then they would go, they would be sent to Nasser and the Nasser would befriend them and, you know, they could, they felt they could confide in him. And this was, um, you know, young women across the spectrum, the, the gymnasts at the gym in Michigan, you know, the young dancers and other athletes in Michigan, the Olympic gymnast, you know, the, um, an Olympic gymnast wrote the forward to the book and her sister, who was a national team member, um, Tasha and Jordan Schweikert. And they said too, when they were training, um, on the national team and the Olympic team at the Caroli Ranch, um, the coaching there, the, you know, under the Carolis was extremely abusive too. And they said that they would go to Nasser's room and he would be their friend and that was their safe place. And he was nice to them and, you know, he would sneak them secret treats um, and which meant like granola bars, you know, something because <laughs> they just weren't supposed to eat anything basically. Um, and um, that he... That's how he ensnared them, and he would talk to them about their personal lives and, you know, did they have a crush on any of the, the male gymnasts? And, you know, looking back, they both said, too, gosh, you know, as adults, they realized that for um, for an adult man to be that involved in a young girl's life and personal life, of course, is a ma- major red flag. But, again, they were very isolated gymnasts. They were embroiled in training. Um, a lot of the young women told me they didn't, you know, Abuse was not on their radar. You know, it just wasn't... Their parents thought they were safe in gymnastics world. They were always training. Um, so abuse wasn't... It just wasn't part of their universe. And also they had never dated. Even through high school, they didn't date because they were, you know, spending all of their free time at the gym. And so, you know, a lot of them told me they had never even held a boy's hand. But, you know, so they were very vulnerable yeah. um, kids. Yeah. Did they ever talk amongst themselves uh, or talk about uh, Larry to, you know, each other, like uh, that what he was doing or question anything? Yes, that's a really good question because, and this was very interesting to me too, some of them didn't talk about it, but some of them did. And there was, I remember one young woman told me um, she had, when he first abused her, she suspected it was abuse. And she had grown up in that boot camp gym but she had left it for her high school gymnastics team because it was just too insane. So she was a little bit out of the, uh, you know, the kind of brainwashing zone as the women described it. Um, and she she could recognize that that might have been abuse. And afterwards, she she went to her friends and said, "Does he do that to you? What was that?" And she said, "Her friends said, oh, he does that to everyone.'" And she thought, "Oh, well, then it must be okay because." She wasn't, he wasn't singling her out. He wasn't targeting her. Um, and so oddly, you know, the fact that he did it to so many girls ended up helping to protect him because they would think, well, he does it to everyone. Another gymnast, a um, three-time national champion gymnast, told me when he first abused her, it was at the Caroli Ranch. And, and she wasn't, you know, she... She wasn't sure if it was or wasn't abuse. She just had a very dark feeling about it, and she she refused to see him on her final night. And she said one of the other gymnasts there said something like, "Yeah, he touches you funny." So, you know, the fact that he did it to all, you know so many of them, I think, if they did talk about it with each other, that kind of helped them 
rationalize that, well, no, it couldn't be, he wouldn't be doing something wrong. You know, he's not targeting me. And that's a reminder how, of how kids think, you know. Um, we look, we look at kids as adults and think, well, how, you know, why wouldn't you know? Why wouldn't you say? Well, we're not thinking like kids, <laughs> you know. Um, a lot of these are young kids and their brains aren't fully developed there and they were vulnerable in so many ways. And, and here, here was the Olympic doctor. We're taught to trust doctors and he was this huge, big, important doctor. Um, but you know, that young woman who had, who had gone to her friends and said, do you think it's abuse? It killed me because she said she looks back and she feels, she's so mad at herself, you know, because she feels like I knew I didn't trust myself and I knew. And I told her, and I told so many people because I heard this time and again that they look, they look back and question themselves. The kids, the parents, everyone looked back and questioned themselves or blamed themselves. And that killed me because the blame is on the predator, you know, and his enablers. That's who to blame. But I could see that this is what predators do to people. They make them look back and blame themselves. But again, that's why all these women shared these stories because they want to help other people um, recognize how predators work and so, you know, to prevent this in the future so other families don't have to go through it. Mm. Well, you talked about the institutionalism of all this, how the fact that there were so many different girls molested kind of lent itself to the idea that it's normal and so did all these other people who looked the other way. So I have to ask you, obviously one of the parallels to this would be the Jerry Sandusky case at Penn State University where it appeared to be going on for years and people looked the other way. How prevalent do you think this is across America? I have a feeling we're going to be hearing about a lot more cases like this. You know, some other more cases have come out about doctors um, around the country. Um, you know, I think there's so much to be learned from this. And again, that's why I'm so glad these women shared these personal stories because they've shown how this happens. And, you know, I think they really help people understand, um, you know, whether kids or adults are reading this book, it helps them see, trust your instincts, trust your gut. Cause you know, a lot of these girls, or some of these girls did, even if they weren't sure if it was abuse or not, they, they let themselves be talked out of it, um, and I think there's such a powerful lesson in that. And also to, to parents, to coaches, to administrators, you know, listen. Listen to what students, athletes, listen to what kids are telling you because, um, you know, they weren't all evil and diabolical trying to protect a predator. They just weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. They just assumed that he was the doctor and this was a kid. So... Um, the doctor knows what he's doing, and the kid has misunderstood. So there are just so many powerful lessons in this, um, you know, across the spectrum. I, I found in, in the book, I think one of the most important parts for people to try and, and, and understand is um, there were quite a few girls that even when the story of um, Larry Nassar assaulting kids came out uh, and they were asked because they were trained by him or trained in the same gym and he mm -hmm. doctored them and um, they actually said no and they denied it and they denied it strongly and it took them a long time before they actually would turn their story around and one point um, Judge Kavanaugh was up for his 
you know, becoming a supreme, and that whole sexual assault thing came out. And because of the way that happened, I think a lot of the girls were scared. So I think there's this part of them that they're into denial of some sort. Yeah, well, this was so interesting that it goes to show just how good this man became at being a predator. I mean, he was such a master. These women thought he was their friend. You know, they had grown up with him. They thought he was their friend for life. Um, Their families knew him. You know, I remember um, Lindsay Lemke's mom told me she bought him gift certificates to take his kids to dinner because she was worried that he was spending so much time um, helping Lindsay that he wasn't spending enough time with his own family. These families thought he was their friend, and these young women, yes, a number of them who I talked to, in the beginning, when the allegations first came out, they didn't believe them, or they didn't want to believe them. They just wanted to believe it was a medical treatment. Um, you know, even the young woman who had reported him in 1997 to the coach at Michigan State, she said when the allegations first came out, she didn't she didn't want to believe them because it meant she was right. It meant she was right all those years ago, decades ago, and that she could have stopped him. Now, she was a kid. She did everything she could. She reported him to the coach at Michigan State. Um, but, you know, even for her, it was hard to wrap her head around the idea that he was a predator. So, yeah, so a lot of the women... Um, they just, you know, they couldn't see this this man, this friend, this nice, a lot of them described him as this nice, nerdy guy. You know, you think of a predator, you see Law and Order, you hear the scary music, you know the predator's coming. Here's this nice, nerdy, sweet guy, this friend, this guy who was always there to listen, always texting, bringing gifts, you know, spending all this time. He even, you know, people trusted him so deeply he manipulated people into bringing their kids to his house where he abused the kids in the basement because he set up a makeshift clinic in his basement. So what, with his family there, you know, family upstairs, him downstairs, abusing kids on this, you know, in this little clinic he had set up. Um, you know, and again, the families felt like, well, he's the Olympic doctor. <laughs> and how amazing that he's making time for us, you know. So, yeah, so it was hard for people to to accept that this nice guy was a sexual predator and that it was not he was not giving the medical treatment. It was abuse. And, you know, what helped some of the women, well, I'm not sure if helped is the right word, but what, what made them accept that he was a predator for a lot of them was the fact that he got caught with all that child pornography. You know, that, yeah, I have to ask you about that. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but that is... Oh, no problem. You know, he tried to play it off as just inappropriate touching or other things, but they mm-hmm. found something like, what, 35,000 child pornography mm-hmm. images and videos. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. not like this guy was just, you know, a nice guy who crossed the line sometimes. He was a prolific sexual predator for decades. Yes, and he was a manip- he was a manipulator, and... Even after he pleaded guilty, he wrote a letter to the judge saying he had only pleaded guilty because he wanted to spare his family and the community the pain of a trial. So he was still, after he pleaded guilty, claiming he was, you know, a good doctor. That's what he said in his letter. He was a good doctor. And he said the women were just mad because the media had made them believe 
that um, if he had done something wrong, and he said, "Hell hath no fury like yeah. a woman scorned." <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so he was just constantly manipulating. A perfect example of his manipulations was um, um, there was a young woman named Kyle Stevens. She was six years old, and she was a neighbor, a family friend, um, and he started abusing her when she was a kid in the basement and he there was no he wasn't pretending to give any medical treatment he was just outright abusing her and when she was 12 she realized what was going she realized it was abuse because she read about the catholic priest scandal and a friend told her she had been abused and she started to realize oh my god this this neighbor this friend this doctor what he was doing was abuse and she told her parents and they or she told her parents some of what he was doing and they um he went over to the to her house and he sat down with her and her parents and he told the girl oh uh, she discussed this in her um victim impact statement in court he told her um you know obviously i didn't do that but if someone did abuse you you should tell someone and he, you know he said if this does if this does happen to you you should tell someone this is a 12 year old girl and you know what a mind game he's telling her if someone does abuse you that way you should tell someone Someone was abusing her that way, and she was telling someone, yeah. and it was him. So it just goes to show, you know, the the manipulations, the lengths he was willing to go to. Well, and then last year, it says here, on, I'm reading some uh, thing off Wikipedia here, where it says that he was trying to get a new sentencing hearing because he's claiming that the judge was biased against him as if that was the problem. It wasn't the hundreds yes. of victims and child pornography. It was bias. that. Just yes, and I mean, I know, and um, I talked to the judge about that, Judge Aquilina, who's fantastic. Um, she, yeah, she's the one who let, you know, more than 150 women stand up in court, give their victim impact statements, and that's when you saw that phenomenal week of, you know, all these women standing up, and, and she spoke to each one of them individually after they stood up. It was just, you know, an absolutely cathartic scene, and, um, but yes, afterward, yeah, his attorneys, he accused her of bias, and, you know, she points out that actually um, before Nasser pleaded guilty, um, to be fair, she had put a, a gag order on all the women. She had made all the women mad <laughs> because she had put a gag order on them, and um, so because so they couldn't speak to the press, to be fair to him. And, um, you know, she said, I guess, you know, he <laughs> their side forgot about that, but in the beginning, all the women were mad at her, but after he pleaded guilty, guilty um and it was part of his plea agreement that um that women who had accused him of sexual abuse could have the opportunity to make a statement in court that was part of his plea deal i, I just don't think he imagined how many yeah. <laughs> would want would be doing that and um and also as women began standing up other women um who had been part of the case felt empowered that they could too you know so the number kept growing um, but yes, I mean, it, again, it just goes to show his, um, you know, just ever, <laughs> never ending tactics to try to manipulate and blame and others. He's so disconnected. It kind of reminds me of when Ted Bundy was days away from being executed and, you know, the governor was refusing to give him a stay of execution and all this. Ted Bundy actually said something like, I don't understand why everybody's out to get me. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Like, yeah, you know, you're not in prison because a judge was biased against you. Exactly. It's like that's not what's going on. Oh my on god! Here. Yeah. 
Right. And now, now nobody else got charged in any of this this uh, abuse, like TriStars or John Goddard, the coach. None of those people got uh, convicted of anything, right? Um, well, there's a number of people have been fired and some have been arrested. Um, one of them is going to jail. Um, so the, people have been fired from Michigan State, from USA Gymnastics, from the U.S. Olympic Committee, um, and so, several have been arrested from um, Michigan State and from USA Gymnastics. And, um, for instance, the Michigan State coach, the president, and um, Nasser's boss, the dean of the osteopathic school at Michigan State, they were all arrested and charged. Um, the coach and the president are still um, in the court system. The the dean um, was found guilty of, you know, he had failed to supervise Nasser, and he is going to jail. Um, but the coach, the, the um, coach at Twistar's gym in Michigan, John Gatter, the one who so many of the women told me, um, created that abusive training environment, they said, you know, they really want to see him held accountable. And he he was suspended by USA Gymnastics after the Nasser sentencing hearings because a lot of the women stood up and started talking about what he had done in court. Um, so he was suspended, and then, then he retired, and um, the Michigan police launched an investigation, and now the Michigan Attorney General has taken over that investigation of him. But it's been going on for more than a year and a half, and... You know, the women, they want to see him held accountable. You know, there was another woman who told her story for the first time in this book about how uh, she says um, Gettert, the coach, started grooming her when she was um, 16, a gymnast at his gym, and that when she left his gym at 18 for college, he initiated a sexual relationship. And she said she was one of those kids who had grown up in gymnastics. She had never dated anyone. This was her first love rehearsed everything she thought he was going to marry her and he ended up discarding her and leaving her suicidal and also um his actions violate the code of conduct of the olympic watchdog safe sport you know a coach that, that a coach athlete relationship like that even though she had left his gym and even though she was 18 it violates the code of conduct because there's a power imbalance there um, and it, you know, in her case, it left her, you know, almost killing herself. And and she told her story to help people understand about grooming, you know, about how, and about how this gymnastics environment on so many levels can be harmful. And, um, you know, again, it's it's all part of this story. This coach who went on to become Olympic coach and worked with Nasser for almost 30 years and um, is under investigation, but has yet. To be held accountable, so um, it'll be very interesting to see what shakes out there. Mm. Are there any uh, civil actions or lawsuits against anyone or the universities involved? Or yeah, so there was um, yeah, so um, Michigan State University, USA Gymnastics, Youth Olympic Committee, Twistars, um, yeah, there are civil suits against all of them. And the Michigan State, a very interesting story came out. Um, in my a lawyer told me a very interesting story for my book about Michigan State because. MSU ended up settling um, for $500 million with the survivors. And, you know, these women need this money because so many of them who I talk to are suffering from terrible injuries today because they were not treated as children because doc their so-called doctor, Nasser, wasn't treating them and because they weren't, they were afraid to even tell if they had injuries, you know, the gymnasts at the gym um, because they would get in trouble. So now they're, they have a lot of medical bills and a lot of therapy bills too as they're coming to grips with the fact that they're trusted 
childhood doctor had sexually abused them. So, you know, really used his money. And um, there's an attorney named Jamie White who I spoke with for the book, and he told me something so interesting about that settlement. He said when the case first began, um, there basically was no civil case because so many of the women were outside the statute of limitations, for one thing. And separately, Michigan State had immunity as a state, as a government institution. So, um, you know, it looked it looked pretty impossible for anything to happen for most of these women. Well, Jamie got to work behind the scenes with a state senator on um, two bills, one to expand the statute of limitations and the second to strip the university of its legal immunity. And he was so smart. He kept tabs on the lawmakers. He, you know, kept track of which way the vote was going to go. And he, he realized that um, the bill to expand the statute of limitations was going to pass, but the bill stripping the university of its immunity was not going to pass. There was pushback on that, you know, like um, from the, you know, well, from a lot of different forces. In fact, you know, same with the statute of limitations, you know, the Catholic Church is pushing back on expanding that, you know, because they don't want to be sued for um, priest abuse going back decades. So anyway, but it looked like the statute of limitations bill would pass. But the bill uh, stripping the university of immunity would not. So Jamie found that out. He got on the horn with his band of lawyers, because there were lawyers across the country representing this growing number of women, and said, make the deal now, because he said Michigan State doesn't know yet that it's going to keep its immunity. And they made the deal Mm. for $500 million. (laughs) And and the university might have, you know, would have, could have paid nothing. It's incredible. Um, now, what do you want people to get out of the book? Um, well, I really want them to read it and understand how predators operate, how they prey on not just the kids, but the entire family, the parents, the community, the grandparents, you know, the, how predators prey and and how to stop them in the future. I mean, that's what these stories do. I spoke to 25 survivors of Nassau's abuse, spanning spanning almost 30 years from the very first known survivor to the very last. The first survivor is in her mid-40s now. The last is in her mid-teens. And, it, you know, it just goes to show that the range of the abuse. And they unveil decade by decade by decade how he honed his skills. So there is so much to learn from these stories because like I said these are the girls who grew up with him these people they knew him well and they saw it all and um, there's incredible power in their stories I mean they basically took the power back from this predator and now they're sharing it with other people so I hope people read this book and see how it happened and how we can prevent it from happening again and also just to you know the courage and the strength of these women to tell these deeply personal stories. It, it's incredible, you know, the fact that they were willing to do that to help other people because when you tell a story like that, you're putting yourself out there, like we talked about at the top of the segment, you're putting yourself out there um, in so many ways. You're exposing yourself, you know, people know something deeply personal about you from a Google search. <laughs> um and they know, you know, before you go to a job interview, the boss knows something about you. Before you go on a first date, that person knows something about you. And it's, it's your most personal, you know, experience, most personal, painful experience imaginable. 
and they know that about you before you even meet them. You don't get a chance to tell them. They already know it if they've mm-hmm. Googled you, and everyone's Googling everyone, so oh, everyone know. knows. And, and everyone says stuff. You know, and, yeah, and some of these women are parents now themselves, and so when they go public with their story, they have to figure out how and when to tell their kids because their kids are inevitably going to find the details online. You know, so it takes so much courage to to come forward with a story like this, but it's what it's how things change, and it's it empowers other people to do the same. You know, the the very last NASA survivor, a young woman named Emma Ann Miller. Um, she was a 15-year-old girl, and um, when I spoke to her, she said that when she stood up in court and gave her statement to Nasser, um, that next week at school, in high school, one of her classmates pulled her aside and took her into the bathroom and said she was being abused by a relative, and she had never told anyone, and she saw Emma Ann stand up in court, and she was telling Emma Ann, and it just gave me a chill because Emma Ann said, you can tell someone, you can tell your mom. And the girl did. And right there, you know, you see the power of telling these personal stories and how it helps other people um, figure, you know, either figure out what's happening to them or figure out how to tell what's happening to them and see that they can, you know, that they have the the strength to do that. So that was a long answer to your question, but those are the reasons why I would really, I really hope people read this book. Well, it's a really, There's so much power in it's it. A, it's a really good book. I, I listened to it a few times, and I recommend it. And oh, uh, Now, we're going to have your website and the book posted on our website so people can, uh, when they're listening, they can do one click, pick up the book. I recommend it. The audio book is read really well, too. You have a really good um, person that reads the book. Uh, I really like that. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, she did a great job. Yeah, really good. Um, so uh, the book is called The Girls. It's an all-American town, a predatory doctor, and the untold story of the gymnasts who brought him down. And that guest is the author, Abigail Pesta. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for spreading the word about these brave women. I so appreciate it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.